The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. The first four verses, and now we're going to pick up on verse 5, Titus chapter 1. So that's where we are today. If you want to look there, if you want to take notes, uh, you can. Uh, this was at the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry, sometime probably in the late, mid to late 60s. Uh, is one of the last epistles that he wrote out of his 13 letters, and he wrote this to a young man had, that had been serving along his side for close to 20 years, Titus. Titus was one of those unique, faithful helpers of Paul like Timothy who served Paul a long time and very faithfully. And so uh, Paul was traveling with Titus, doing various ministry, church planting, training up leaders, equipping the saints. And they had occasion, Paul and Titus, and probably some others on their team, where they went to this uh, island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. It's a very large island. You can see it on your Bible map. And Paul and Titus spent time there. We don't know how long. Could have been enough maybe to plant a church or two. Maybe he was visiting the Christians who were already there that came from maybe the day of Pentecost years earlier. But we do know that Paul didn't get to spend much time on the island of Crete. It's a, it's a very large island. And there were many cities and the Christian faith was there. It was immature. It wasn't fully developed. It lacked a lot of structure. They didn't have a lot of hands-on scripture. They didn't have hands-on apostles giving them direct revelation from God like the church in Jerusalem was so privileged to have. And so they had believers there, but they didn't have a whole lot to go on by way of direction. And so when Paul got there with Titus, Paul decides to leave Titus there. And Paul realizes, wow, these churches are pretty fledgling, they're lacking, they've got some struggles. Probably a lot of these churches were new, just beginning. And so Paul wants Titus to strengthen these Christians and these churches and, and formalize the ministry, really. Uh, and so that's why Titus was uh, on this island of Crete. And so Paul's going to write Titus a letter to encourage him and tell him exactly what he wants Titus to do and carry out his ministry on this island of of Crete. So that's the context of this little letter, only three chapters long. And he's, Paul's going to hit a lot of different themes because he's trying to, on one hand, distill it down and make it compact. And at the same time, he has a lot of topics to deal with because these people need a lot of information because they are without much information. So we're going to see a lot of doctrines and a lot of themes uh, passing by very quickly throughout the book of Titus. Uh, follow along with me as I read chapter 1, verse 5, where we're picking up after the introduction. And this is really begins the content and the bulk of and his instructions in this letter of what he wants Titus to accomplish. Uh, verse 4 says, well, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, and then verse 4, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And then verse 5, he says this, For this reason I left you in Crete, that is, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you for this reason. Here's your purpose statement. For this reason. And then Paul says, as I directed you, Paul is speaking as an authority. Because he's speaking as an apostle. An apostle represented Jesus Christ himself. So Paul literally is speaking for God. Here's what God wants you to do. Here's what Jesus wants you to do. It's authoritative. It is binding. It is universal among the churches. I'm even inscripturating it, putting it in written form so you have it before you, so you can read it to the saints there, the congregation, so that they can see this is equivalent of Scripture. 
needs to be implemented, needs to be obeyed. That's how Paul is speaking authoritatively as an apostle to Titus, and he's delegating this apostolic authority to Titus so that Titus will be listened to by many probably who really don't either know him or maybe they were questioning, well, what right does this Titus guy have to tell us what to do all of these churches? Well, he's doing it uh, by using apostolic authority that came from Paul, which came from God himself. So that's where he's starting for this reason. And then uh, in verses 6 and 7, Paul immediately goes into it and following. He goes into qualifications of elders in a church. And we're going to look at that next week and the week after that. So today we're just looking at verse 5. For this reason, Titus, I left you on the island of Crete in order that you would set in order what remains in the churches there and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So before I even start talking about these very specific qualifications of an elder of a church, I wanted to talk about elders and just kind of give a survey and an overview because that is absolutely foundational, especially in the day and age in which we live here in America where you have uh, churches popping up all over the place uh, across America for a lot of different reasons, taking on a lot of different uh, attributes, characters, uh, characteristics. And so you could be actually quite confused if you took a survey of all the churches of America because you're not going to find necessarily a homogeneous model of a church today in America. Which is fine because there needs to be diversity and variety among local churches. That's the beauty of God's Spirit and His people. So there are are things that will be different that are legitimate, but at the same time there are things that should never change in a church. There are things that you can't compromise on. There are things that are absolutely essential that make a church a church. And more and more, and this has been true all throughout church history, sinful man just tends to botch things up. And we see that all the way in Genesis. We see it all the way to Revelation. God intervenes. He gives people information. He goes to His saints. He tells them how to do something. He tells them how to set it up. And it doesn't take too long before human sin enters in and then humans compromise the very thing that God has given them to bless them. You can see that in Genesis. You can see it in the life of Abraham. Abraham, I want to bless you. I want to give you descendants. I want to make you a nation. And then Abraham gets out ahead of God and ends up with an illegitimate son named Ishmael thinking, okay, is he the one? No, you, you messed it up, Abram. But Abram was a man of faith. And that's what sinful humans do. God gives us something and we mess it up. We, it's like we take God's Word and then our own opinion. We take God's Word and our own desires. We take God's Word and the recent consensus of people and we mix them together. And then what we've done is we have actually polluted the Word of God and made it null and void. And that's exactly what Jesus told the Pharisees And the Sadducees, they were Bible teachers, Old Testament experts, probably had the Pentateuch memorized. So they believed in the Old Testament, yet they were illegitimate. And one of the reasons was is because Jesus said that they took the Word of God and they mixed it with human tradition and human reason and polluted it as a result. And then Jesus said the end result, it's null and void. It's compromised. It's actually disobedient. Here you're trying to honor God by what you're doing and you're actually dishonoring Him. So the Pharisees are probably the the greatest example. And that's just so typical of, of humans. So we have got to be vigilant. We have got to be guarded. We've got to stay on track. We've got to stay focused. We've got to let the Word of God guide us. We can't compromise on it. We can't add to it. We can't improve on Scripture. God knows best. We don't. Right? We've got to trust it. We've got to believe it's sufficient. 
probably one, just a couple more Old Testament examples of somebody with the right desire and the right intent and had some of God's revelation and then added human components to it and botched everything up. A classic one is in Exodus 32 where Moses is up on the mountain face to face with God and God is giving all this information to Moses of how to build the tabernacle and how to make sacrifices and how to ordain priests and all the proper garments and where you're supposed to do it and who's supposed to do it and how you're not supposed to have graven images or idols ever because that's idolatry. And while Moses is up there doing that, there's Aaron, his brother, down below with two million Israelites or Jews waiting for Moses. They're getting impatient, so finally they just said, okay, Moses is probably never going to come back. So, Aaron, can you build us an idol so we can worship it? And so we, it can lead us into the promised land. And Aaron says, hey, sure. And he takes a collection, and then he makes this, uh, whatever, this golden calf of an idol. Now, what's amazing about that is they weren't totally off base because they said they wanted an idol to worship so that they can worship a God who led them out of Egypt. So they knew that God led them out of Egypt. And they got that from Scripture. So that was legit. Then Aaron builds this calf, and then Aaron presents it to the people, and Aaron calls this idol, he called it Yahweh. Israel beholds your God, Yahweh. And he gives it God's very sacred personal name. And so there you got two biblical truisms. It is God's true name is Yahweh, and he did lead him out of Egypt. And at the same time, they compromised it with human indulgence, human sin, and as a result, it was idolatry and blasphemous and grievous to God. So that's just a classic example where we do that. So that's why going now to the New Testament church, the same is true. We've got to guard against human tendencies, our own preferences, uh, the pressure of the culture in which we live so that we're not being conformed by the world and go strictly from God's clear dictates in Scripture of how to run a church, how to start a church, how a church is to function. And so that's what these verses over the next three weeks are going to be about. How do you lay the foundation of a church? Who are the leaders of the church? And what are the qualifications of those leaders? And what are the titles of these leaders in that church? So let's go ahead and look at how God wants a church to function in terms of its leaders. And it starts with what Paul calls the elders. So uh, i got six points there that I want really to be a survey of just verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. So the title of the sermon I put, The Need for Church Elders. Every church needs elders. That, that is just basic. That is all over the book of Acts. That is the clear mandate of Scripture. It's the clear mandate here. It's the clear mandate in First Peter in the New Testament. That is not ambiguous. Every church needs elders. That's why I came up with the title. The need for church elders. And I've pastored in churches where we didn't have elders. And I realized that. But it was still a church. There were dear saints there. But I was never content with that. We have got to move towards a biblical, healthy model. As a matter of fact, two of the churches I used to pastor at, I did approach the leadership about that, showed them from Scripture. They agreed, and now I have left. And as a result, those two churches now have elders when they didn't when I got there. And I just praise God for that. It wasn't all of me, but it was saints being receptive to a biblical truth when it was brought to their attention. And I think as a result, those two churches are healthier, 
because of it, because they're obeying clearly what God has mandated of how a church is to be established and run. So let's go ahead. And really what I'm focusing on today is just elder. What is an elder? Who are the elders? Uh, before we talk about their qualifications, the need for elders in churches. So uh, I want to look at a couple of words first in verse 5 before I get to my first point, And that is, for this reason, Paul says, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. And that phrase, set in order. Set in order. In, in the Greek, it's one word. It's a mega compound word. It's got a preposition, epi, plus another preposition, dia, through. And then the word it's tacked onto. Now, in Greek, when you take a noun and you add a preposition, usually that makes it emphatic. When you put two prepositions onto a noun, not only is it emphatic, it is very specific. So this word set in order, it's one word, and it's got two prepositions tacked on the front. Epi, dia, and then get this, ortho, ortho. Wow, that sounds kind of like uh, a couple of English words. We have like orthodontics. That is exactly where orthodontics, that word comes from. Orthodontics is when that mean guy messes with your teeth and it really hurts. And he puts those wires on there to make them straight. To set them in order. They are out of order. They're pointing in all kinds of directions. They are immature. They're underdeveloped. And they need to be set in order. That is this word. In Paul's day, this word was also at the root of orthopedics. It was a medical term where you set bones back in order. A broken bone and it was fixed and it's now set straight. Or even uh, broken nets that were torn and they would fix it so that you could use it again. So this term was very specific. It was a medical term. In addition to other ways it was used, it was a specific term and it spoke to something uh, very specific that pertains to this passage and that is to bring about health and setting in order that which is not healthy, to make it functional. So when you apply that to a church, God wants His church on the right foundation with the right leadership and the byproduct will be you will have more likely a healthy church if you have a right kind of leadership. And it also, it will be func- a church will function the way it needs to if it is run God's way and if it has the proper foundation. So that's huge. Ortho. I want you to set in order. I want you to set straight. So there were things at the churches where Titus was at on Crete where the churches, they were not set straight. Things were awry. Things were off. They lacked structure. They lacked those braces to keep things proper and in order. There was too much freedom. There was a lack of direction. The problem wasn't that they didn't have leaders because they had leaders. Verse 10, chapter 1, verse 3, uh, chapter 3 also refers to leaders. The problem was these leaders were unbiblical. They were unqualified. And they were messing things up and they weren't doing it in order according to Scripture. And then Paul say, man, you need to straighten this out. Not only do we need leaders, we need qualified leaders, Titus, so that we can have a well-functioning, healthy church on the island of Crete. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains. What remains, that implies that Paul did some work there, but he wasn't done yet. In other words, he's talking about a whole, probably a whole bunch of scattered church plants, which I'll remind our members about GBF. We started six years ago as a church plant, very small, from scratch. And I continue to tell those who join the church even now, do you realize if you're joining this church, you are joining a recent church plant. And why I keep saying that, what I mean is, There's work that remains in verse 5. There's work that remains. How come you don't have this ministry? And how come you don't have this ministry? And how come you don't have this ministry? Because God brought you here to start it. Thank you. (laughs) 
finish what remains. These churches were underdeveloped. They were recent church plants. They needed more. They needed more leadership. They needed more time. They needed more giftedness. They needed more resources. That is true of GBF. What remains needs to be built up. And you do that through the saints, but you also have to have the proper leadership intact in order to pull that off. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order or make straight and fix what remains so that it can grow further and develop and mature and then point elders, note this, in every city as I directed you. In every city. So that's where it's clear. This is universal. This is binding. This is a command. Every church needs to have elders. That is clear. And then you go to Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas are planting churches all over the place. Spend a lot of time in a lot of these places. And before they leave, it says they're encouraging the saints and they appointed elders in every church without exception. That was Paul's pattern. That was God's mandate. Appoint qualified elders in every church in every city. 2,000 years later, that should also be the goal of every church in America. Put qualified, godly leaders called elders in every church in every city. With that background, let's go to points one through six and just to highlight on some basic truths that we have got to have down because they're foundational regarding elders. And this can really be confusing because of modern day parlance here in America really has botched everything up and made everything foggy when it comes to elders, pastors, overseers, bishops, uh, cardinals, popes, priests, nuns, etc., etc. So our, our culture hasn't helped. So hence points one through five. Let's go ahead and look at it. Point number one, every church needs a plurality of qualified elders. We already established that every church needs elders, but the emphasis here is a plurality. This is the, this is the pattern in the New Testament. By the way, the word elder in this uh, verse, verse 5, it's pres, presbyteros. You ever heard the word presbyter, Presbyterian church? That's where this word comes from. That means an elder. Presbyterian churches are, they have a plurality of elders as counsel for the leadership structure of their church. Presbyterian, that's one of their distinctives. Appoint presbyters in every church. Presbyter. That's the Greek word for elder. By the way, you know what it means? Older man. Not old fogey. Older man. Let me clarify. Older man in contrast to younger man. Because in 1 Timothy 5.2, same word, it contrasts older men versus younger men. 1 Peter chapter 5 does the same thing. It says younger people, young men, need to appeal and submit to older men. 1 Timothy 5 says that young people should not rebuke older men. They should rather appeal to older men as fathers. You don't rebuke an older man if you're a young person in your 20s or 30s, according to the Bible. You appeal if you have questions. That's just a generic truth. But the point is, just in and of itself, the word presbyter means older man. And when that's applied to the church, that just speaks of experience, wisdom. You've lived life. And really what it means is spiritual maturity. So there is a threshold of spiritual maturity that an elder needs to have in order to function in the church. And a lot of this comes with age. I knew when I went to seminary, I got saved when I was 19. All I knew is I loved Jesus. Uh, then I wanted to study the Bible, so I became a Bible major. And then I went to seminary. The only reason I went to seminary is because I wanted to study the Bible. Nothing else sounded interesting. Math, I'm terrible at math. English, that's boring. Uh, okay, Bible, hey, that sounds exciting. That was the only reason I went. 
thinking, okay, who knows what God might do with this someday. And so then I go to seminary, I graduate, I've got a Master's of Divinity, I've got a college degree in Bible, and I spent three years under these incredibly godly men teaching me for three years full-time, and they've all pastored, and they're 60, 50, 60, and 70 years old. And the longer I was in seminary, the more and more I felt like a worm. And that's how most of us felt, right, Brian? Uh, Anyway... So we suffered together. So every year and semester that went by, I'm thinking, I am so unqualified. I, well, there's no way I can be a pastor. Well, there is no way. And I'm just, that's how I felt. So when I graduated, it was like, I'm not ready for a church. And what, I was like, wow, I've got a long way to go. And I was about 25 when I graduated. And I knew because I was taught from the Bible. I am not ready to be an elder. First of all, I'm not old. I am not seasoned. I am not mature. I've got a lot of learning to do. This is going to take time. This is a sacred office. And, and I need time. And so years went by. And this was mutual between my wife and I. I'd say, I am not mature. I am not experienced. And she would say, you are not mature. You are not experienced. So we were in total harmony with each other. And finally, I turned into my 30s and somebody at a church asked me if I would consider being an elder. And I knew, wow, in my early 30s, um, am I really an elder when I'm in my 30s? I still feel so young. And then with time, with other elders and training, even further training, I was finally ordained as an elder. But even then, in my mid-30s, I felt incredibly inadequate. But the point being, elder means older man. Very important. By the way, this is not just a New Testament concept. Uh, The idea of having elders and the plurality of elders, it comes right out of the Old Testament. It was part of that culture where Israel was. And Israel... Uh, the older men in the community were considered the elders. They were the wise ones. They were like the city council. And so in the days of Moses, if you go to Exodus 3.18, 3.16 and 18, when Moses is getting speaking to God and is commissioned to go set the people free, it says that Moses was there consulting with the elders of Israel about this. He is seeking wisdom from a council, a plurality of godly older men. He, he is not a lone ranger. You know, if you've seen the Hollywood movie of Moses and the Ten Commandments, it's pretty much the Moses show and every once in a while there's Aaron. Moses, Moses, Charlton Heston, Charlton Heston, Charlton Heston. Well, he can do it all by himself. Well, no, he can't. If you read the true story in the Bible, from beginning of Exodus all the way to the end of Deuteronomy, it is Moses and the elders, Moses and the elders, Moses and the elders. Just look that phrase up. You'll see it dozens of times. He was not a one-man show. He's taking advantage of the plurality and the pool of wisdom that came with the experience of these older men that he leaned upon in so many ways in the area of ministry to the nation of Israel. That's when it began for God's people formally in the book of Exodus under the days of Moses. And then it even grew and became even more formalized throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And we see that explicitly in all of the Psalms. The elders, the elders, the elders. In addition to the priests, there were the priests and there were the elders. That's why uh, during the intertestamental period for that 400 years before Christ, uh, Jews began using synagogues. And in a synagogue, to run a synagogue and to have a legitimate synagogue, you must have had a plurality of qualified elders, the council of the elders. And that's why when we come into the New Testament, lo and behold, out of thin air, there's this thing called a synagogue that Jesus would teach in. And there was no synagogue in the Old Testament. And you're wondering, where did that come from? Well, it was a man-made creation that God accommodated Himself to, that Jesus was raised in, taught the Word in. Jesus Himself was a rabbi of the synagogue. So Jesus condoned the legitimacy use of a synagogue. As a matter of fact, the church is patterned after the synagogue. But the synagogue had a plurality of elders. So that in the New Testament, 
in the synagogue, there's this plurality of elders. And then in Acts chapter 11, for the first time, the church adopts the model of the synagogue and implements it in the church. And now all of a sudden you've got a plurality of elders in the local church in Jerusalem. And so for the rest of the book of Acts, from chapter 11 to 28, there's this repeated refrain when it comes to important decisions in the church of Jerusalem. And it's the apostles and the elders. Those are Christian elders. So that is the model. As a result, Paul could say, everywhere I go when I start and plant churches, we must raise up a plurality of qualified elders, and these are older men. That's God's plan. It always has been with respect to His corporate people and how they administer ministry. Very, very important. The plurality of... By the way, it's kind of interesting. If you do a word study of the word, of, word elder in Acts to Revelation, well, don't count Revelation. That's a different usage. From Acts to 3 John, Jude, elders is almost always in the plural when it, with respect to a local church because that's the model. God doesn't want one elder in, in a church. That is not God's design. He wants a plurality of elders for a lot of reasons, for accountability, for encouragement, shoulder to shoulder in ministry. Ecclesiastes says that uh, th- two and three are better than one. That's God's... God. Jesus Himself trained 12 guys, not one guy, to fill in after He left. It's a plurality of men for a reason. God wanted team ministry. And that is the model in a church. Every church needs a plurality. Let's go on to number uh, number two, and that's the term elder itself. As far as if you want to take notes, this is kind of important. Uh, The point on number two is that the term elder is interchangeable. You can even say synonymous. And this is where a lot of confusion is. The term elder is interchangeable or synonymous with overseer or bishop. That's the same word. Depending upon your English translation, it'll have either bishop or overseer. The term elder is interchangeable with overseer, bishop, and shepherd or pastor. That's the same word, shepherd or pastor. Let's look at two passages just to show you. It's crystal clear. Actually, before we do that, let me uh, define those words. Elder in the Greek is pres. Presbyteros, presbyter. It means older man, mature man, elder, presbyter. That is a Jewish term, and it was in Paul's day. Then there's bishop. The Greek word is episkopos. You've heard of an episcopalian? That's where it comes from. Episkopos. That's epi, that's a preposition. Epi is, to, is over. Skopos, where we get the word scope, which means to look. To look over, to see the big picture. That's what an episkopos was. That's what an elder is supposed to do. An elder is an episkopos, to oversee. And that's our English word, overseer. A bishop is an overseer. He oversees, he sees the big picture. He can see who's going out the back door, who's coming in the front door, who's sneaking over the wall. He knows the big picture. It's not just this myopic view of what's going on in your little world, in your little corner. The elder has to see everything to give you perspective, to see what God's doing in the church. So, elder is presbyteros, which is a Jewish term. Uh, Bishop is episkopos, which actually, get this, was a Gentile term. And Paul was the, the apostle to the Gentiles. So when he's going into pagan Gentile cities and he's throwing out the word Presbyterian or presbyteros, they're like, huh? But when he said episkopos, they're like, oh yeah, our city council here, in Lystra is made up of a whole bunch of Episcopos guys. A plurality of them. That was a term they could identify with, and so God uses that to make it synonymous with presbyter, 
which brings unity in the church so that no matter where Paul went, talking to a Jew or a Gentile, and he either said presbyteros or episkopos, they knew what he was talking about. A plurality of older men in the community. That's why those terms are synonymous. And then finally, the word pastor. So you got elder, bishop, pastor. Here's a Bible trivia fact that's very important. The only time that the word pastor as a noun is used with respect to the New Testament church after the Gospels is in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. God gave gifted men to the church. God gave gifts and gifted men to the church. The gifted men He gave to the church are first apostles and prophets and then pastors and teachers and evangelists. Pastor is used as a noun there in Ephesians 4.11. That noun is never used again with respect to pastor. From then on, whenever Paul employs it, Peter employs it, or an apostle employs it in the writings of the New Testament, it's always in a verb form, not a noun. Because that's what you do. Pastor is not so much what you are, it's what you do. What do you do? You pastor, you shepherd people. That's what a pastor does. And we're going to see that in the verse we're about to look at. So those are the three terms. Elder, bishop, pastor. They're interchangeable. Uh, Presbyter is Jewish. Episcopos is Gentile. Uh, Pastor was universal. Interestingly enough, the the point of emphasis in the meaning on elder refers to the qualifications of the man of God, maturity. Episcopos referred to the office of the man of God, like the presidency, the Oval Office. That's not a man, that's an office. Then there's qualifications. So elder emphasizes the qualifications in his character. Bishop or Episcopos emphasizes the role of the office. And then pastor really emphasizes his duties because it's always a verb. It's what he does. Am I qualified? Elder. To assume this office? Bishop, overseer. To do what? To shepherd. That's the verb. Those three terms. That's how they're used together. Two passages is all we need to look at. Maybe just one. Go to Acts chapter 20 because 1 Peter 5 says the same thing. So we'll just use Acts chapter 20. If you've got your Bible, go there. This is nearing the end of Paul's ministry uh, where he's he's already been arrested. Or this is where he gets arrested. He's about to get arrested. He's going to go be incarcerated and then go to Rome. Before that happens... uh, He knows that his days are numbered and the time is short. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17, the Apostle Paul, it says he calls the elders of the church in Ephesus. Notice it's plural. They are identified. He knows exactly who they are and they know who they are. There's no question. They went through a a process to be ordained as elders that was very careful, prayerful, slow, cautious, informed, biblically driven. Not lighthearted, not superficial, not on a whim, not self-appointed. These men of God, keeping in mind that Paul had pastored in Ephesus for three and a half years. Paul planted the church at Ephesus, pastored there for at least three and a half years, and visited there on more than one occasion. He knew these guys. He loved these men. These are the men he's talking to in verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and he called to him the elders of the church. Hey guys, uh, I want to rendezvous with you and I want to meet with you. So he meets up with the elders. Could have been dozens as far as we know. Then he starts talking to these guys. Um, you yourselves know, verse 18. But look at verse, go all the way down. So Paul's having a, he's giving a speech. He's giving him exhortation. Basically he's saying, you know what, I'm leaving and I'll probably never see you again. So here's what I want you to remember. Verse 28 of Acts chapter 20. Be on guard for yourselves. Yeah, watch your moral and your personal life. It starts there. Not only watch yourself, but also watch out for the flock. 
That's what elders do. Watch out for the flock. Among which, get this, the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. Who made you an elder? Who made you a pastor? Well, it was God. God puts people in authority, ultimately. The Holy Spirit has called you, made you an And in the middle of verse 28, notice, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. See, that's episkopos. That's a bishop. To shepherd. That's from the word pastor. That's the verb. He's made you overseers to do the work of pastoring the church of God with his own blood. And then going back to verse 17, originally he called them elders. So the elders are overseers, are bishops who pastor. Very important. So a pastor is an elder, is a bishop, is an overseer, is a shepherd, is a pastor, is an elder, is an overseer. So you cannot have a pastor at a church who is not an elder, at least biblically speaking. You can't have an elder who's not a pastor or a shepherd. So we have four elders here who are they're shepherds and overseers. They're just, they go hand in hand. That's what you do. According to the Bible, we need to stick to that model. Very, very, very important. So the term elder is interchangeable with overseer and shepherd. Go on to number three. Elders, pastors, overseers, bishops, shepherds have specific duties. And they are limited. They are delineated in Scripture. They are very clear. I thank God for that because as a, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a, a pastor and a, a basketball coach sometimes and a what, what anyway. But primarily I'm a pastor. And I'm thankful that God has made it very clear in Scripture what pastors are supposed to be doing. In other words, my job description is right there for the whole world to see. If you're a pastor or an elder, here's your job description in Scripture in the New Testament. It is just spelled out so clearly. Here is what you are supposed to be doing. I thank God for that because then I can stay focused. Okay, I know what I, I, know what I need to be doing. There's a lot of good things I could be doing. I could be doing lemonade stands on the corner for free for the homeless down in San Francisco. I could, be, I mean, there's, I could start a, a food pantry. I could, uh, I mean, just a lot of philanthropic kind of good things to meet the needs of the world. And Jesus said, forget it because the poor you'll always have with you. And Jesus even said, the poor is not my priority while I'm here ministering. And if this is your calling as a pastor and elder, that is not your priority. Your priorities are delineated in Scripture. So I just put, I want to mention just a few for you. We're not going to look all of them up. I'll tell you what they are. Elders, pastors, shepherds, overseers have specific duties and they're all immediately within the context of the local church. That is priority number one. A pastor needs to spend the most of his time, the most of his focus, the most of his prayer life, the most of his ministry, the most of his interfacing with the people in the local church because that's where his sheep are and he's a pastor and a pastor first and foremost needs to be with his sheep. Well, why aren't you out evangelizing the whole world five days a week, pastor? Well, because God's called me to first take care of the sheep. And then as I have occasion and opportunity, I do want to witness to the lost. And part of my job of working with the sheep is to train the sheep how to evangelize and even give them opportunities to evangelize and encourage them in the evangelization of people they rub shoulders with. So, yeah, evangelism plays into it, but it's not the priority. It is in the context of ministry in the local church. That is clear from Scripture. And that's why you have to have a lot of local churches. A lot, the more biblical local churches you have, the better. We're all in this together. We need more. We need more biblical churches in Mountain View and in San Jose and in this area. Absolutely. But they have specific duties. It's in the church. So here's some of the specific duties. First Timothy 3, 2 says that they need to teach. So they need to be teaching the Bible and the Word of God. That, that's priority. If you're an elder and you're not teaching the Bible somewhere, then you're not doing your job as an elder. 
because that's one of the basic things that an elder or pastor does is feed the sheep, teach the sheep with Scripture. And And this is one-on-one teaching. That's called counseling and also preaching and teaching. So there's many contexts that you can be teaching. But that's priority number one. Jesus came preaching and teaching. That's mainly what he did. That's what a pastor shepherd is supposed to do. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul told the elders, overseers there that they need to guard the flock. So part of guarding and protecting the flock is a job basic to elders and pastors, and we do that. We try to do that here at GBF. 1 Peter 5, 2, uh, one of the things we need to do is shepherd. That's the verb. We need to shepherd our sheep and all that that entails. That's kind of an umbrella term. It includes a lot of things. Shepherding. Well, that means feeding, leading, protecting, among other things. James 5.14 says the elders need to be praying. Praying for the sheep. Very deliberately, very specifically, as, especially as the saints communicate needs to us. We are not omniscient. We want to know your prayer needs and your praises. Fill out a white card. And then Ephesians 4.11 and 12 says God gave men of God to the church for a specific reason. He gave pastors to the church to equip the saints. That is one of my main responsibilities as a Bible teacher. You equip the saints, you equip believers with biblical truth. That's how you equip saints. It's with giving them biblical truth that is correct, that is relevant, that they can apply in their life. That's primarily how you equip the saints. And then with that comes modeling and everything else. So those are basically the main... That's it, for the most part. The bulk of what we're supposed to be doing. Especially when somebody is going full-time in that task. There were times where Paul wasn't full-time as a pastor, and times he was. When he was full-time, he was given over totally to all of these things as the model. So elders have specific duties. They are defined in Scripture. Number four. So in other words, pastors shouldn't be doing stuff not defined in Scripture in their role. Number four. That reminds me of a story, but I'm not going to tell you because it would embarrass me. So, uh, but it's a great illustration. It was when I, wore, I had a job. Okay, I'll tell you part of the story. So it was when I was a brand-new teacher. I think back... When you are a brand new classroom teacher and you have no experience and you look back and think of some of the things you did, it is horrific. It is horrifying. It is embarrassing. You don't want to tell anybody. You never, this, this was even 20 years ago and I never want to see those students ever again. I am not saying, yeah, I want to be your friend on Facebook. I don't ever want to talk to you because you knew, you know what I was like when I was a first year teacher. And I made some horrible mistakes. So I won't go into the worst ones. But I remember when, as a teacher of English, I was given a scope and sequence and a a course syllabus for the class I was supposed to be teaching to 7th grade students. The first year I was a teacher. And I guess in the introductory orientation meetings with my supervisor, I really wasn't listening very carefully to that. So when I got into the class, I'm just like, oh, this is cool, and I've got 32 7th graders under my control and my authority. This is awesome. And, yeah, there were a couple textbooks, and, yeah, we'll look at those maybe later if we have time. And so I kind of started doing some of my own stuff until finally it didn't take long. Got word through one of the kids, through one of the parents, back to the school, the administration, the supervisor of the English department who calls me in and says, what are you doing? Oh, I'm having a great time. Well, what are you teaching? Uh, this. Well, you can't. That's the 11th grade textbook. Oh, anyway, that's my story. You can't do stuff outside of your job description. Number four. Elders have delegated authority and high accountability. So when you assume the role of pastor, elder, overseer, bishop, you do have authority. But that's 100% delegated authority. It's not my own authority. It's not inherent authority. It's 100% authority on loan from God that I am accountable to God for. And I don't have the privilege or the right to do my own thing 
I am only allowed to do what He wants me to do, say what He wants me to say. Actually, I'm supposed to be a servant leader to the church. Serve the people. I don't have any authority at all. It's all delegated authority, and I'm accountable to God for what I do with this. It is, when you are a pastor and an elder, you're in a position of authority. And which is true of any position of authority, you can abuse that position of authority, can't you? Parents have delegated authority, but their role as parent is a, a role of authority. And you can distort and abuse the authority as a parent that God has given you. If you're a government official, you have delegated authority, but you have authority. And you can abuse that role of authority and become a corrupt politician or a policeman or a referee. How about those NFL referees? That's the story. But anyway, uh, all these positions of authority can be abused. It is delegated. That's, my, that's why I underlined the word delegated. That's the most important thing that we need to remember here. This is not my church. This is not Cliff's church. And I've said that at the beginning of GBF from day one, and the people have welcomed that, have lodged it into their brain. They know that this is Jesus' church, isn't it? It's delegated authority. And with delegated authority comes a very high level of accountability. Let's just look at James 3.1. This is review because we went through James. But it's a great reminder. If you're going to stand up formally and represent God and His church and Jesus and try to teach the Scriptures with binding authority, Wow! Hopefully you've been called by the Spirit of God, appointed by Him, vetted by the people, and have maturity to do it because there's an accounting before God if you assume that role. And that's why James says in James 3.1, Let not many of you become teachers. Let even fewer of you become pastors, elders, overseers. Because you can be a teacher in the church with this delegated authority and not be a pastor. We have Sunday school teachers. We... So there are gifted people who can teach, but they're not pastors. All the more... This high accountability for a teaching pastor or teaching elder in the church. Let not many of you become teachers. If you can think of something else to do in life, do that thing. Well, let's see, I, I want to be either a pastor or a fireman. And somebody's getting counsel from me? Because I've had men ask me that. I, pastor Cliff, I can't narrow it down. I either want to be a, a CEO or a fireman or a pastor. Oh, that's easy. Or usually it's uh, two things, a, a fireman and a pastor. Oh, I know the answer. I don't even have to pray about that. Be a fireman. That's a no-brainer. Don't decide to pursue the pastorate and be an elder until you've got one thing in mind. You're a single focus. This is what God wants me to do, especially when I'm talking about a full-time vocational. This is the only thing you do. It's got to be clear from the calling of God. And then if you're a lay part-time elder, and there are some in the New Testament who have other jobs, you become clear in your mind if that's God's calling by the people that God uses around you and the indwelling Holy Spirit confirms that in your heart. But in terms of full-time vocational pastor, let many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such uh, we will incur a stricter judgment. That's all there is to it. That is scary. That is frightening. It's a good sobering reminder for me. 1 Timothy 5, I'm not going to read it, but in terms of the high accountability, uh, Paul says, hey, if you've got... By the way, people, saints, don't go uh, accusing elders by yourself. That's illegitimate. As a matter of fact, you can't bring an accusation against an elder in your local church unless you're an eyewitness and you have somebody else with you who is an eyewitness. Then you can start talking. Otherwise, close your mouth. That's a very serious thing. But elders will sin. They will blow it. They'll botch it. When they do, Paul says... When appropriate, they need to be rebuked publicly so that others might fear. And that's that high level of accountability that comes with that role. So, number four, elders have delegated authority and very high accountability, which takes us to number five. 
I don't think I've ever done this in six years at GBF. I've preached on elders before. I can't ever remember preaching on point number five. But it's the perfect and beautiful balance that goes with points one through four. And that is that believers have an obligation to church elders. And there's a reason why I haven't preached on this point. Because I'm a little gun shy too. Because it's kind of self-serving. Because I'm a pastor and elder. And it's like, hey, this Bible verse says you need to be nice to me. And you need to pray for me. And you need to treat me special. And you can't do this. And, uh, so that's, there's, that's partly true. But Scripture is clear, and we need to hear it. And so I'm speaking on this point today, number one, because it's biblical, number two, because we need to hear it, and number three, out of the protection, the good, and the blessing of not me as an elder, but my other three brothers who are an elder at this church and anybody that ever serves as an elder at GBF. Because I don't think we hear this enough. As saints or as a church, believers have an obligation to church elders. By the way, if you are a member at GBF, there's really only four things you need to do. One of those is you need to pray continually for your elders. Just ask you, as a GBF member, when was the last time you prayed for, consciously, your elders? If it is recently, praise God, thank you. If it's been a long time and you can't remember, then you need to renew your commitment to your membership covenant. Seriously. So let's look at uh, some of these verses. Believers have an obligation to church elders. First uh, Timothy 2. I'm not going to read that one, but I'm going to read. Put your, go to Hebrews 13 and 1 Thessalonians 5. We'll look at those. But I will tell you what 1 Timothy 2, 2 says. 1 Timothy 2.2 2 just says that because elders are in a position of authority, you just need to honor everybody that's in a position of authority. Anybody that is in a position of authority deserves your honor, your respect, and your submission. Do that office. So that's foundational. You need to respect and honor the men that are in authority in your local church because God said so. It is the right thing to do. Now let's look specifically at Hebrews 13.17. There's actually a reference he makes at the beginning of the chapter as well. Um, verse 7, Hebrews 13, 7. Remember those who led you. Okay, those are your church leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Remember them. Remember them. And considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Then he goes on in verse, uh, at the end of chapter verse 17, talking about pastors, elders, spiritual leaders in your church. Get this. Obey your leaders. Ouch. That's a scary word for a lot of people. Obey your elders. Obey your elders. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's confined to where it's legitimate to obey them. As they have the authoritative, delegated authority from God to make decisions about the ministry and the course of uh, the ministry in the church. Very simple. We are using this curriculum because that's what the elders have decided. We have put this saint in this position of authority because after prayer and consideration and much time and patience, that's what we feel the Holy Spirit of God was calling us to do. And then you need to obey and submit to the wisdom and the unanimous decision of the elders in those kind of ministry decisions. So it's confined to their leadership and ministry decisions in the church. It doesn't mean that you have to obey me every time and everywhere you see me. You see me at the street, at the library, at Safeway, whatever, and I'm talking about how Tim Tebow's the best uh, football player in the NFL, and you say no, and I say, well, I'm an elder, you need to obey. That, that's not what it's talking about. You're, you're not being smart, but you don't have to obey. So, what's their obligation? Uh, going back to Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls. That's what we do. I know we do it at this church. The pastors, elders, 
are very diligent and very specific about keeping watch over the souls of our members. We have a list. We interact. We interface. We try to make sure that there's a contact with every member on a regular basis. And we check with each other. And that's what we're doing behind the scenes. Even even though you don't see it, that is going on. How are you doing in every sense of the word? How are they doing financially and with their job and with their family and spiritually and serving? And do they have any needs? Are they going astray? How can we help them? How can we pray for them? This is an ongoing discussion of the elders at GBF, and it should be in every church among the shepherds about their people. This is what God has called us to do. We care for you. We're watching diligently over your soul. We want you to grow and have joy and have victory in Christ. And always keep looking to Him, for they keep watch over your soul as those, get this, who will give an account. We take it very seriously. This is the, even our lay elders here, they take this very seriously, if not more seriously than even their secular jobs. Because they know this is, eternal ramifications are at stake. They watch over your soul. They'll have to give an account. Here's a command in verse 17. Let them do this with joy. In other words, you should want your pastor and your elders to have joy with respect to the ministry. I have worked at churches where I didn't have joy. Where I had long periods of grief, frustration, lack of joy with respect to ministry. Very frustrating. And, but this is God's desire and will for us as pastors and elders that we would actually have joy in the ministry. That I, I enjoy being an elder. I'm not going to resign next week. I actually enjoy the work at GBF that God has given to me. I want to have joy. I don't feel guilty for having joy when I have joy because that's one of the goals or the blessings that God has promised to elders who serve well and their people reciprocate in the right way. Let them do this with joy. Get this. And not with grief. That is a command. Do not grieve your elders. Well, I thought the next logical thing to come from that is a question. What makes elders grieve? And it would be good for you as a member... Well, there's only one way to find out. Go and ask your elders or your pastors what gives them grief and what gives them joy. So I thought about that this week. I was making two long lists. Here's what gives me joy as a pastor. Here's what gives me grief grief as a pastor at GBF. And there is a long list of stuff that gives me grief as a pastor at GBF. They're not all equivalent, though. There are only a few things that really grieve me. Most of the other things I can live with because that's just real. That's life. But there are just a few. I had a member actually do this many moons ago. Uh, so, Pastor Cliff, what gives you joy as a pastor at GBF? And I told him. And then they said, what gives you grief? And before I answered, they said, I, let me guess, I know what does. I said, you do? I said, yeah. Okay, go ahead, give it a shot. When members at GBF are fighting and don't get along, division and disunity, that's what gives you grief the most. And I said, How did you know that? Well, because it's leaked out from the pulpit many a time. I was like, wow, you're right. Nailed it. And you know what? If you look at the New Testament, if you look at the epistles of Paul, all 13 of them, and if you diagnosed what gave Paul the most grief, it was division in the local church among the members. You can see it very clearly in the church at Corinth. It He went sleepless nights. He went sleepless continually. Because that was protracted and went on for months and months. It was a heartache for him. It tore his heart out. 
And that's why John, who is also an elder and a pastor and an apostle, says in one of his epistles that there's nothing that gives him greater joy than when his children are walking in unity and walking in truth. No greater joy. So that's the short answer. And it's not unique to me. It's in the New Testament. So this is a great reminder. Think of your elders, your shepherds. Be praying for them regularly. Pray that God would give you wisdom of how you might bless them, how they can have joy, how you can be a blessing to GBF and be a blessing to other members and honor God in your role. Your role is very important as well as a saint in the local church. First uh, Thessalonians 5. Let's look at that real quick. We'll close this with, with this one. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. Uh, Paul says, but we request of you, this is the church at Thessalonica, brethren, this is all the saints, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, who work hard among you. He's talking about church leaders, pastors, elders. The ones who have charge over you in the Lord and who give you instruction. Well, how do you appreciate them? Well, verse 13, that you would esteem them very highly in love. In love. Esteem them highly in love. This is not idolatry. This is in a legitimate way. Because of their work, live in peace with one another. See, you should be at peace with your elders. um, Appreciate their work. Appreciate their calling. They walk with feet of clay. We know that. Um, But they bear a special burden for people. And then 1 Timothy 5, 17-19 says, Honor uh, pastors and those who teach the Word of God in your midst as well. So, uh, hopefully that's just a good reminder for all of us in our obligation. I just look back at the pastors, wonderful pastors and mentors I've had over my life that I just highly esteem and thank God for and have great affection for of how they were so diligent in shepherding me. I still need shepherds today. I have to go to other pastors and get shepherding. Steve Fernandez, pastor up at Vallejo Community Bible Church. He's one of my pastors. Uh, man of God that I look to. Okay, let's go to number six. Elders have specific qualifications. And that's what we're going to do next week. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to look specifically in Titus. What are those? How do they apply? God help us to fulfill that. Let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for, again, another day of worship to be with the saints in your wisdom. Setting aside the Lord's day to do that, God, where we can just put the worries of the world aside. Try to focus on you with your help. Thank you that we can worship you in so many ways. We thank you for the Bible, the living Word of God, that when we hear its truth and understand it, it penetrates our mind, our heart, our conscience, everything about us, so that we might amend our living, live in a way that pleases you, think in a way that honors you, the end result that you would receive all the glory. And that's our heart's desire with respect to everything we talked about today. God, thank you for your hand of blessing on GBF these past six plus years, and the dear saints that you have brought our way. God, continue to watch over us and lead us every step of the way as we commit our time to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 0009.